your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are breakthrough. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show podcast, Anthony sits down with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel is a genius social engineer and evolutionary philosopher and strategist. He's also the co-founder of the Neurohacker Collective, a breakthrough group of biohackers whose vision dictates that it is now both possible and necessary for human beings to dramatically upgrade our individual and collective capacities and safeguard the well-being of all. His work with the Neurohacker Collective has led to the development of a groundbreaking new supplement stack, a guide to neurohacking tools and technologies, a platform for measuring changes in cognitive function, and much, much more. In this game-changing interview, Daniel and Anthony discuss Daniel's journey from chronic fatigue, joint pain, and neurological issues, barely having two hours of functional productivity per day, to biohacking his way to 14 hours of productivity per day and reclaiming his energy and quality of life. They also discuss the role that homeostatic capacity and system resilience play in our ability to ward off both chronic and acute illness, the use of nootropics for cognitive enhancement, and the natural supplement Daniel believes will replace a large chunk of the $5 billion off-label Adderall industry. So without further ado, sit back and relax and enjoy Anthony's conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Hey everyone, I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. You'd shared a pretty interesting story with me about your background and I thought maybe you could catch the listeners up to speed on what you went through and then fast forward to today on how the Neurohacker Collective was originated. I was uh, training regularly, you know, weights five times a week, et cetera, and then just started to have symptoms and joints and then uh, kind of neuromuscular symptoms that were very rapid onset and moving towards debilitating quickly, went and did traditional assessment, diagnosed with mixed connective tissue rheumatic autoimmunity with some neurodegenerative elements as well. And the specific diagnoses I had did not have cures in the allopathic world. And based on progression, so you know, up to that point, the prognosis was not good. And then in the integrated world, there were really no good solutions for these conditions either. There were a few practitioners that had had some marginal success, but not repeated success. And what was interesting was that the few practitioners that had had partial success had it through very different methodologies. Some were addressing infection, some were addressing toxicity, some were addressing nutrigenomics, you know, et cetera. And so I wanted to understand why did those approaches not have wider success, but yet why did they have some success beyond spontaneous remission? And if we start putting all of those together, do we potentially get insights about how the diseases come about differently in different people? and how to assess that what someone calls rheumatoid arthritis or, or polymyalgia rheumatica or MS or whatever is not one cause or even one set of causes that's the same in all people, but might be a radically multifactorial situation where even the multiple factors can be very different factors in different people with different weightings on them. And uh, because 
I had a background in system science and complexity science. It was actually an appropriate background to start to look at biology and medicine and health from a complex systems orientation. And so, you know, look at all the insights from rheumatology, from toxicology, from immunology, from neurobiology, et cetera, and say, how do all these fit together? Because the body is not actually a bunch of totally separate systems. We know that you've got neurology affected by what's happening in the microbiome of the mucosa, right? And, you know, and the gut, we know that we have even a structural issue in your knee can cause inflammation that can have systemic effects and have neuroinflammation, you know, psychoneural effects in, in a system that's so radically complex and interconnected, the divisions become very problematic because you can have causal cascades across all those divisions. And that when you isolate the variables, the variables can look in isolation like they do different things than they actually do in combination with, with other actual variables. And so I started applying this, you know, the, these frameworks, complexity science, system science, information theory, cybernetics, right? Basically more complex methodologies, epistemologies for putting all of the parts of the biosciences together to be able to understand things like complex causation more adequately. So then I looked at for the issues that I had, what are all the things that from any of the scientific literature I could find had statistical correlation? None of them had one for one statistical correlation, meaning it was one acute cause addressed this and it's always addressed, but there were a lot of things that had some statistical correlation. And I wanted to model why could that be? How could that particular thing being off lead to deviation from homeostasis that led to decreased system resilience and system functioning that led to increased susceptibility to more deviation from homeostasis and what we'd call a causal cascade of issues. Once I knew all of the things that could be, as best as I could know, causally involved, then I could say, well, let's do diagnosis across all those and see which ones are going on for me, right? So then I did that, had a basis for differential diagnosis, saw specific pathways that were actually involved for me and said, well, let's treat those, see what happens. And what is the right order of operations to treat them? And what would the synergies mechanisms be? And was able to reverse those conditions. In the process of doing that, a generalized methodology arose and it could pertain to anything, which is how do you increase the homeostatic capacity and system resilience of a biological system? And how do you address identifying what the specific deviations from homeostasis and homeostatic capacity for any system are, and then personalizing medicine by optimization therapeutics for that person? So we took a number of other people, many other people who had supposed incurable complex illnesses, autoimmune, neurodegens, et cetera, through processes of seeing what's actually going on in their biology, modeling it this way, and then customizing approaches, which would never be the same for different people, but would have similar principles. And we were able to find really uh, novel power to correct, reverse lots of things, and then also be able to optimize people's baseline. So this became what has developed into a more adequate system for complex system medicine and personalized medicine. And that's kind of how we got very deeply into the space initially. Wow. That's quite a story. When you were experiencing your symptomology, you had, you mentioned neurological issues. Was your cognition impacted? That's a, it's an interesting part of the story. It's pretty common that when people are dealing with chronic illness, whether it's a diagnosed autoimmune disorder or neurodegenerative disorder, cancer, whatever, or whether it's some undiagnosed, unclear thing, chronic fatigue, you know, Lyme kinds of things, that brain fog is a really common thing that goes on for people, damage to their drive and other kind of, you know, psychological uh, disoptimization happen. And the tricky thing is that what it actually takes to resolve 
those complex health issues requires usually people having very clear cognition so they can study all the stuff they need to and make sense of it and make good decisions. And they've actually got to do quite a lot of stuff. So their drive needs to be in a good place and their you know, emotions need to be in a good place. So for myself, since I realized I was going to have to figure out solutions for myself since they didn't exist, and I was starting to experience less hours of cognitive clarity, right? More brain fog. I was like, all right, well, the very first thing I have to do is use the chunk of cognitive clarity I have to ensure that it doesn't go down and that it goes up. So that then I have capacity to work on the rest of the stuff and then get back to my work. And so... I was wanting to see what are the fastest ways to upregulate cognitive capability even before I deal with the rest of the underlying pathology. And so that was a deep dive into drugs, nootropics, cognitive chemistry, and other methods of cognitive optimization, making sure that in the process of doing that, we weren't actually damaging the system further, but we're helping the health and resilience of the system while increasing capability. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience myself. And that was the challenge was that you only had so many hours of we'll call it mental clarity, brain power and motivation during the day. And then I would eventually find myself in the afternoon or early evening, just in like a vegetative state where no good was being done. And then gradually with time, you'd get more and more of, of that high ROI period. And then it was an upward spiral as opposed to the downward spiral that a lot of people unfortunately experience. There's such a growing epidemic with these mystery illnesses and diseases, whether it's it's brain fog, chronic fatigue, neurological problems, digestive disorders, rheumatic symptoms, or just simple tendinitis. Do you have any theories as to what you think are the biggest contributing factors? Yes. Let me go ahead and address it comprehensively. Say we look at a a disorder like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or something that we can diagnose that is a a complex illness. We might see that there are certain inflammatory markers that show up, maybe autoimmune antibodies, maybe cytokines, something that could show up in a blood panel before the symptomology is uh, enough that we would diagnose the disease. So we still this inflammatory process is the cause of that disorder. Except the, the inflammatory markers, these are signaling chemicals that were initiated by something else upline. Similarly, we can see hormone imbalances, but those are always going to be responding to some things upline. So we wouldn't say this is the tier one cause. This is part of a causal cascade. It's somewhere in the causal chain. If you want to go all the way back up and say, what would the tier one cause, the initial cause where you have a healthy system that is in homeostasis and that's in dynamic homeostasis and it has strong homeostatic capacity and resilience, what initially happens that moves that system out of homeostasis and out of homeostatic capacity on that axis? We can define health, not just as the absence of illness, because as we know, you can have illness that is actually developing pretty far pre-symptomology and you can have a an asymptomatic brain tumor. And then by the time you actually notice symptomology, it's pretty advanced. We can define health as the homeostatic capacity or resilience of the assist system across all of its homeostatic axes. And so homeostasis is, are the numbers in the right range, right? Is the temperature, is the blood sugar, are the nutrients, et cetera, in the right range. That's less interesting. The homeostatic capacity is when that metric is stressed somehow, does it have the ability to stay in the right range in the presence of stressors? And so we can define resilient health as the resilience, the total homeostatic capacity of the system. We can define illness as 
some markers that moved, there was some deviation from homeostasis that moved some markers out of range beyond the body's capacity to return them to range, which then leads to what we call pathophysiology, altered functioning of the physiology, and then a cascade of illness. So that's what we can say diseases. Aging, in contradistinction to disease, we can define as the decreased homeostatic resilience of the system. So the system might still be in homeostasis. All the markers are in the right place, but they have less resilience to deviation, which means it's not yet disease, but it's increased susceptibility to disease. So we can now define optimizing health and kind of anti-aging in the same way, which is increasing system resilience. And then reversing disease is actually reversing pathophysiology to come back to homeostasis and then homeostatic resilience. So we can look at it that way. So then you say a tier one cause of any illness is where the initial deviation from homeostasis that was beyond the capacity of the system to return to a functional level, what was that? And it will always be one of two things. It will always be, and this is not just for humans, this would be for a plant or an animal or any complex adaptive system, right? For now, let's just say any biologic system, but we could generalize beyond that. For any biologic system, it will always be some interaction of the organism with its environment that is not aligned with what its homeostatic code can process or some overarching behavior of the organism that's not aligned with its homeostatic code. So what that means is we have some code, right? We have an evolutionary biology of code. So we have our genetics and then our microbiomics, viromics. This is all a code layer, how to do what we do. Now, for instance, in our evolutionary environment, we didn't have glyphosate. Right? We didn't have Roundup. And so we actually don't have evolved biology for detoxing chemicals like that very well because they weren't part of our evolutionary environment. We also didn't have artificial lighting. We also did, you know, there were a lot of things where the world today has us interface with an environment that's different than our evolutionary environment, where our evolutionary code is not optimized for dealing with those kinds of deviations from homeostasis. Like non native EMFs, Wi Fi. So you could put in all of the. EMF, RF, you could put in all of the toxicity, all of the nutrient deficiency, all of the, you know, so many things, right? But if you just say the interface of the organism with its environment, that because we have a boundary, right? If you think of it as our skin and our mucosa, but the boundary is exchanging energy and information with the environment all the time. We're taking stuff in and we're letting other stuff out, but it's very important that we take the right stuff in, not the wrong stuff, and we let go of the right stuff on the wrong stuff, right? So interface with the environment that's inappropriate is taking in too much of something for what our code can process. That's what we call toxicity, right? And that can either be too much of something that we should take in, but it's just a too total much, right? Which is a quantity type, too much sugar. Or, or too much total calorie for what we're burning or whatever, right? Even too much of a certain nutrient. Or we're taking in things that we just really shouldn't be taking in at all. Mercury, glyphosate, whatever, right? Or pathogens would fit in that category, so pathogenicity. And that can be too much of something for our capacity or things that are just really things that our, our system did not well evolve to deal with, like MRSA. And, and so too much of something, toxicity, not enough of something, deficiency. So this is not enough trace minerals in the water because it's not, not glacial till or spring water, not enough trace minerals in the soil. So even if you're eating very well, not enough humic acid and fulvic acid microbiome in the soil, right? So we have not taking in enough of the right things, taking in too much of the wrong things. Those are both tier one causes of disorder for us. And if you look at integrative medicine, you start looking at categories of toxicity, heavy metals, organic toxins, biotoxins, all the different infection types, right? All the different deficiency types. And then you can also 
look at the overarching behavior of the organism, sleep, psychological stress, diet, posture, movement, all of the ways where the organism might not actually be behaving in a way that its evolutionary code is adapted for behaving. The tier one causes will always come there. And sometimes place where its actual code is suboptimal, i.e. genetic propensity for an illness. Propensity usually doesn't mean predetermination. It just means it's more susceptible to deviation from homeostasis there, so it's an area to support more. When you say, in the current world, what are the causes of some of the increased complex disorders? Well, it's exactly the fact that we modified our environment very radically to an environment that is different than we're genetically adapted to, so we have a lot more toxic exposure of many kinds, a lot more infectious exposure, and all of that has a, has a load on the system. A fantastic explanation and much more eloquently put than some of the examples that I've used, which is, you know, yeah, a lot of times doing things or putting ourselves in in a situation where the acute or chronic stressors exceed our ability to recover. And then there's that tipping point. Along your journey, back to your story, what were some of the interventions that you employed, whether that's supplementation, whether that's lifestyle interventions that you feel provided a breakthrough for you? Well, it's important to make the distinction just to be explicit that some of the ones that were very relevant to me would not be relevant to other people with the same condition. So let's take, for instance, the radically high mercury levels that I had. I played with mercury by with my hands with a kid as a kid. You know, it was just a dumb thing to do as a kid who was into chemistry and not particularly cognizant of the biological effects. So I probably had levels of that from whatever fish and fillings and like that. But then I I had exceedingly high levels. So chelation was very meaningful for me. It might not be as meaningful for other people. We do see things like heavy metals being higher than evolutionary baseline and having subclinical, right? You have clinical metal poisoning, and but that's extremely acute. But then anything less than that is what's potentially a subclinical condition, but it's, there's a pretty big room between perfect health and acute clinical illness, right? This is true with infection. Modern medicine does well with acute infection, but there's a bunch of chronic subclinical infection. So a lot of these things are at sub-subclinical level for lots of people because they're environmentally ubiquitous, but they're still at different levels and different total impacts on their health. So for me, chelation was very meaningful and various forms of chelation for different metals. For me, dealing with infection was very meaningful. And this was gut infection, humoral meaning blood and cellular infection. And that was treated with a combination of integrative methods from meds, right? Antiparasitic, antibiotic meds and supplements, herbs and, you know, nutraceuticals, orally, IV, rectally, you name it, work with many of them. And many of them are actually still current best practices for certain kinds of conditions. There are some things that have less good science at scale and yet have a lot of early anecdotal indication and clinical indication of significance like PEMF therapy, pulse electromagnetic field therapy, ended up being very meaningful for me particularly. It was for you know a number of people. There were some transcranial therapies that were meaningful. Nootropics were actually one of the most meaningful things for me because when I went from two cognitively useful hours a day to 14 cognitively useful hours per day, my rate of healing went up dramatically. 
because I was able to actually figure shit out and do shit a lot more effectively. So, And I want to dive into those specific nootropics that you've used and how that played a role in, in your journey to creating Qualia and the Neurohacker Collective. For chelation, did you use intravenous chelation methods used, or, or was it more oral? So as a general thing, and I'm sure you'll probably put this on notes on the bottom of the show, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not prescribing, diagnosing, treating anything. Neurohacker doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. Go to your doctor for anything. With that said, this is all just us having a conversation for educational purposes. I personally used oral, rectal, and IV chelation and different chelating agents, different chelators. Chelate basically means some chemical that will bind to some mineral, including heavy metal minerals, and uh, bind to them in a way that helps them be excreted through the kidneys, through sweat, through the liver, right, through some different detox process and specifically usually help pull things from tissues into the blood and from blood into the detox channels. Chelators are one part of a detox process. If you have things that are being flushed from the liver, right, if, if the liver is pulling them out, they are then going to go from the liver into the intestine through the gallbladder. You need to make sure that you don't reabsorb them. So you need binders, right? And there's so you've got zeolite, chlorella, charcoal, cholestyramine, a bunch of binders to make sure that the last phase of your detox process is complete. You've got supporting liver detox pathways. This is glutathione, NAC, supporting the cytochrome P450 pathways. So you, all the things to help the liver, all the things to help the kidneys and protect the kidneys because the kidneys are very sensitive. And a lot of these toxins that are being passed out that are water soluble can damage the nephrons of the kidneys if you don't protect them. You've also got being able to get the water soluble ones out through sweat rather than through the kidneys, which is why saunas are very useful. So a lot of saunas. You've got things that open up the tissues and so increase the microcirculation so that the stuff actually can move. And this is niacin. This is other vasodilators. And then you've got things that help at various tissue levels actually be able to bind the toxins, move them out. This is cilantro. This is chelating agents, et cetera. So chelation, I'm just specifying, is one part of a comprehensive detox pathway specifically for metals. And then there are other toxins like biotoxins or, or plastics or whatever that don't really use chelators, they use other things. But as far as chelation goes, EDTA is a specific kind of chelator that has specific affinity for certain metals. DMPS or DMSA have specific affinity for other metals. You also have to be careful because some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier and can help detox metals that might have moved into neurologic system, but could also potentially, if the neurologic system has a lower metal load than the blood does, potentially take things in the wrong direction. So there is an order of operations. And so you've got people like the Cutler Protocol who say chelation is bad, but I think they're really referring to bad chelation is bad. What I would advise regarding chelation, since it is actually a medical therapy, a very potent medical therapy, is that if someone is interested in exploring it, find a good integrative doctor who really specializes in this and understands this topic well, because it can be very meaningful for people. But the difference between someone who has a very basic understanding and a deep understanding is actually a big difference in this topic. That's a great recommendation. And then you'd mentioned gut infection. Was that parasitic in nature? Was that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, something else you were dealing with? If you think about the inside of your intestines, it's actually the outside of your body, right? Like this is the outside of my body. 
right? It's still an interface of outside things. When I put food in my mouth, that food is not yet in my blood. When it goes into my stomach, it's not yet in my blood. It's when it crosses that mucosal barrier that it's kind of in the blood. So you can think of from the mouth to the rectum as this kind of hole, right? The elementary tract that goes through the system that is really not on the blood inside of the system. And so you have mucosa, just like you have in the nose and the sinuses and the lungs and the urogenital tract, all the places where we interface with the outside world that you actually need to exchange particles across more than you do with the skin. And so you think about all of the stuff, right? There's a lot of stuff in your food. There's toxins in your food, potentially you have pesticides on them, you've got parasite eggs. There's a lot of things you don't want to go into the blood. The stomach acid has to kill some of the stuff and break it down. And, but then the selectivity of the mucosa has to know, is this a good thing and bring it in? Or is this not a good thing and keep it out? It's, it's actually a mind-bogglingly brilliant thing that this mucosa can do to be that selective, right? But if we put in things that damage the mucosa, then we can start having problems and start absorbing things across the gut barrier that we shouldn't, not absorbing things that we should. And we think of this as, uh, you know, leaky gut mucosal barrier breakdown, et cetera. One of the key parts of this is subclinical infections, which might just be normal bacteria and yeast that are part of the intestinal microbiome. But because you took antibiotics or drink, drank chlorinated water or ate too much sugar, certain of the microbiota became more prevalent than they should be relative to the whole picture. So it's not actually like an exogenous infection per se, it's overgrowth of certain things. Like you mentioned, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Or you can actually have exposure to things that just really shouldn't be part of your system at all that we, that we consider pathogenic creatures. And that can be parasites, which can be microscopic ones like Giardia or Cryptosporidium or macroscopic ones like worms and flukes. You can have bacteria, fungus, right, protozoa, different, different kinds of infections. And not just in the gut, but in other mucosa, in the sinuses and the lungs. This is a topic that allopathic medicine doesn't really address at all. Integrative medicine focuses on heavily. And in integrative medicine, the kind of traditional gold standard most integrative docs will do is a comprehensive GI panel to look for microbiome and mucosal, mucosal barrier function, et cetera. That will tell you about a lot of bacteria and some yeast, some protozoa, but it's an extremely high rate of false negatives for many parasites. Parasites in particular, especially when you think of large parasites, like, like actual worms, not just protozoa, because how would you tell if it was there? If it's, if it's just latched on somewhere or hiding in some spot, it's not going to show up in an average stool sample. Parasites are a notoriously hard thing to detect, and so they're more common than it's traditionally thought. So, you know, for me personally, I had bacteria that showed up on labs that were exogenous parasitic bacteria, I mean, uh, pathogenic bacteria. But I also had parasites that did not show up, but then obviously visually passed. And that's a very common thing. One of the things that we're working on is actual better diagnostic technologies, the science of better diagnostic technologies themselves, as well as better treatment methods. That's great news because your experience is a common one. And I've had a lot of clients where we now don't, we don't even use any of the, the stool sample tests because of the false negative. And more so, it's symptomology. And if they're showing a high prevalence of symptoms that we know correspond with parasitic infection, yeah. usually do some sort of intervention, starting with herbals and things like that that are on the safer end of the spectrum. And as you said, there's visual evidence of infection. Sometimes it takes two or three months. But yeah, these tests miss that quite frequently. Let's, let's talk about nootropics. 
and how you were able to utilize those to go from like two hours a day to 14 hours a day, how that really accelerated your recovery, and then what transpired after that. So again, there's a difference between how I personally dialed in my own cognitive chemistry and then what are generally good guidelines across the board. So as I was starting to do this for myself, I was running whole genome sequence. I ran a tens of thousands of dollars of clinical chemistry. So I could actually, I had pretty good indicators of what was going on with my hormones, neurohormones, neurotransmitters, histamine levels, right? Like a, a lot of key things. And so I could dial those in. In the process, I got to see how quickly and profoundly I could affect cognition. And so then I did this with a lot of other people where we had deep clinical chemistry for them. And the question started to be, as we identified that a lot of it was totally personalized and very different person to person. Someone who was over-methylating and under-methylating needed exactly opposite therapies, right? People who were over-catecholaminergic and under-catecholaminergic needed exactly opposite therapies. But there were a number of things that were pretty common across the board that everyone who was experiencing certain kinds of cognitive deficit almost all needed and, and or benefited from. And so then we started working to see, are there generalized chemistry approaches that if we don't have all that information to do personalized approach end up being very meaningful for most people. And we were really surprised and happy to find that the answer was yes, that there were a lot of things that we could do across the board that for people who would self-select to want that thing, right? They had those issues going on was very, very meaningful across the board. That's how we developed the product. The first product we brought to market called Qualia was working with all of those primary pathways that affected various aspects of you know, cognitive function that ended up being meaningful for most people. And when you were formulating Qualia, what opportunity did you see in the market that wasn't being covered that you wanted to do differently? There's various kind of levels of what you could call the market. We saw that there were something like $5 billion per year in off-label Adderall sales happening in the U.S., it's the best kind of estimate we can get because it's off-label sales. And this means not people who are taking it for real prescribed, you know, ADD, et cetera, reasons, but for midterms and for finals and for their tech startup. And that was an exponential up curve and that more smart drugs like modafinil and armodafinil and, you know, et cetera, Ritalin were being added to that. And that these were things that actually had a very narrow band of benefit. They could increase focus, but they weren't increasing fluid intelligence and verbal fluency and digit span and memory IO, and they were actually negatively affecting empathy and task switching and things like that. So they had a very narrow end of what they benefited. They anti-benefited some of the things that people want at the same time when they're trying to be in a kind of cognitive, productive flow state. And they created dependence, right? They had side effects because you have, say you take Adderall and its effect on dopamine production. You've got this whole complex cycle of how the body makes and regulates dopamine. And if you just come to the very end of the cycle and just do a very strong dopamine agonist to produce more of it, then you end up taking this endogenous regulatory process, right, internal regulatory process, and overriding it with an exogenous stimulation. And then that ends up making the system dependent upon the exogenous stimulation. And so one of our key focuses, and that's how you get dependence and addiction, downregulation. One of our key focuses was how do we understand the whole regulatory process well enough and where the bottlenecks or limits or challenges in the, in the regulatory process are that we can work through different mechanisms to actually upregulate the regulatory capacity of the system so that if someone uses whatever 
technology or injunction this is, they get immediate benefit. So it will it will help them with their midterm or whatever. But they also get long-term system upregulation. So if they use it for X amount of time and stop, rather than being downregulated, right, having some dependence, they actually have lasting benefit to their baseline. That was our goal. And that's actually a design principle for us at Neurohacker Collective, that anything we build has to upregulate regulatory capacity, has to work through the pathways of endogenous regulatory capacity. When we looked at most any of the smart drugs, none of them did that, right? They're all overriding some endogenous regulatory system. We wanted to robust them. So that was a key distinction. Also, they worked through very limited pathways. It was just affecting in-chain pre, you know, presynaptic dopamine agonism or something like that, right? It's one thing. There's so many more steps in dopamine. And then dopamine is just one of the catecholamines. And then that's not addressing acetylcholine or glutamate or the phospholipid membranes, the internal cell energy or the neural hormones. Or the, and so we wanted to say, when someone is wanting to increase their cognitive capacity, what do they really want? They don't just want focus. That might be one of the acute things they notice, right? But they want increased ability to focus on one thing and increased ability for fluid task switching when they need to, right? They want increased drive and increased sensitivity and empathy simultaneously, increased critical thinking to tell when an idea is a bad idea and increased systemic thinking to put ideas together to have new insight, right? Like there's a bunch of dialectics where you actually want to optimize for both sides of the dialectic at the same time. Well, we're used to, you know, Tim Ferriss has the, there's no biological free lunch quote. And what he's saying is if you're increasing one area of the system, you're moving energy from other areas of the system. And so you're going to have side effect if you do that long-term. This is true unless you can increase the bandwidth of the whole system, right? Upregulate the homeostatic capacity of the whole system where someone can have more focus and more fluid task switching simultaneously because they actually have a more robust, more resilient, more capable system. So our goal is fundamentally that. That's our approach to neurohacking, to biohacking, to bio-optimization is because also think about dopamine. You don't want really high dopamine all the time. There, there are times you do, but there are times where you want dopamine to chill out and to have neuroinhibitory processes, GABA and serotonin go up, right? So having a system that's more adaptive, right? Intelligently, appropriately adaptive to the need and the circumstance, more quickly adaptive is way better than a system that is just spiked at a particular in a particular way and so we saw all the smart drugs all the energy drinks doing a very narrow thing without doing the rest of the things that were meaningful and with consequence we wanted to do a very wide set of things with long-term positive consequences rather than negative consequences so that was a you know what is the space in the market i would say what we really wanted to do didn't exist at all which is how do you really support upregulation of regulatory capacity across all of the systems simultaneously. And what ingredients in Qualia are you most excited about and why? I would say that that question comes from the kind of thinking we're trying to replace, which is it's a reductionist kind of question that says the effect is going to come primarily from one or a few ingredients. The effect is going to come from synergies across ingredients that aren't found in any of those ingredients separately, right? Just like synergies across multiple pathways that if, if someone has a very functional acetylcholine pathway and the rest of their brain doesn't work well, they actually don't have anything. If some parts of the circuit are good, but other parts are bad, so the circuit's not closed, actually nothing happens, 
right? So it's like, what part of the circuit's interesting? Well, no part of it's interesting. The entire circuit is interesting. There are some chemicals within qualia that are just beautiful chemicals, right? They're, they're either awesome herbs or valuable nutrients or really neat forms of a nutrient or really neat, you know, nootropic chemicals. But on their own, none of them are all that interesting. We love what some of the racetam class does, modulates the NMDA complex and you know other interesting things for acetylcholine and other neurotransmitter uptake. We love what ampicines do, the upregulation of the ampa complex and glutamate processing. Uh, we love things that can decrease excessive histamine levels, um, especially from like senescent mast cells. We love phospholipids that upregulate the phospholipid membrane and can help the the fluidity and elasticity of the entire cell membrane. We love redox molecules that can go inside the cell like NAD precursors, right? Nicotinamide riboside and all things in that space, the right intercellular antioxidants that can help make sure oxygen gets where it's supposed to to oxidize the right things and doesn't oxidize the wrong things. We like neurogenic chemicals that increase neurogenesis so that you actually have more new progenitor neurons, right? Stem cell neurons and then more differentiation of those neurons because when you start thinking about increasing neurogenesis, right, the development of new neurons and then synaptogenesis, the development of new synapses, new neurite formation. Well, now you really are not just at a, let's spike the neurotransmitter level more in this direction or this direction. Now you're actually at increased gray matter density, which means a more complex processor that can actually do more stuff. So we like all of those chemicals and processes, but it's actually the intersection of them together where we get really interesting effects for comprehensive system upregulation. That makes sense. Where do you see the greatest applications for qualia? Have you guys started exploring neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, especially with how fast that category is growing as, as causes of death? Or where, where are you guys looking for expansion and opportunity? Right. On the treating disease side, we are actively working on the science of disease treatment, but even as we get good science there, that requires going through appropriate FDA processes to say this is an FDA approved approach to treating illness, et cetera. So there's all the things that we can bring directly to consumers for wellness. Then there's the things that really have to go through the medical model process for legal reasons and or safety reasons. You know, the work that's happening in transcranial ultrasound for Alzheimer's right now is really potent, powerful work. And we're working with a number of the people in that space when you combine that with some of the chemical approaches to decreasing beta amyloid plaque and tyrophosphorylation and, you know, cleaning synapses and, and, and some of the nutrigenomic approaches to dealing with APOE4. And do you get a comprehensive set of processes that portend and into Alzheimer's in the near future? Yes, we believe so. Are we working to develop that fundamental science and help bring it about? Yes. But anything that's going to actually have a, a real medical benefit like that and an associated medical claim would have to go through those medical processes. But in terms of what we're interested in, on the optimization side, our goal is optimizing human sovereignty. Like this is why we exist, is optimizing human sovereignty. And sovereignty for us is three vectors, three, you know, vectors at a right angle. You've got increasing intelligence and intelligence is Critical thinking, systemic thinking, speed of processing, total knowledge, right? All lines of intelligence. There's increasing sentience, which is emotional resilience, emotional intelligence, 
uh, empathy, awareness of self, awareness of others, all things that are like depth of feeling, sentience, and increasing agency. Agency is drive, motivation, responsibility, follow through, capability, right? Choice making. And so if you think of the cross product of those vectors, intelligence, sentience, and agency, and you think of the kind of volume of the sphere defined by the shortest of the vectors, that's roughly proportional to what we would consider someone's healthy sovereignty. We want to increase the volume of that sphere for everyone. And we do believe that that is not just the result of genetic abnormality. We believe that the Bucky Fullers and the Leonardo da Vinci's and the Teslas are people who had certain things happen that catalyzed ability that's actually innate in everyone. And so if you think of polymath as kind of the zenith of intelligence, you think of the bodhisattva, right? Like the, the enlightened, compassionate one is the zenith of sentience and like extreme superhero entrepreneurial capacity, right? The ability to really get shit done powerfully as the zenith of the agency and all of those evolving together and that becoming the new baseline for humanity. That's ultimately our mission is developing tools, technologies, processes, and working with others who are developing tools, technologies, and processes to increase humanity's effective sentience. Then dealing with the disease side of it, obvious, I mean, humanity's effective sovereignty, excuse me, the disease side, obviously disease decreases all of those vectors for people. And so rather than say medicine is its own goal, we would say medicine is to just get rid of some of the grotesque problems that are on their way to the evolving full potential realization of humanity. Those are ambitious goals, but admirable and very exciting. We actually believe humanity doesn't make it without them being achieved. That The scope of biodiversity loss and ocean acidification and climate change and glacial receding and the issues of existential technology and et cetera, et cetera. Like there are enough catastrophic and existential risks, the issues of an exponentially ballooned population with increased, you know, resource use per capita that's exponential on a planet that is passing peak resources. These are complex issues and they require not just thinking on our little scale of how do I win at a game that is actually a self-destructive game. Like it's a game that is, ending its capacity. So they require radical sentience, radical agency to actually do tremendous amounts of important stuff and the intelligence to really be able to do high level complex problem solving. Unless right now, most humans are actually on the liability side of nature's balance sheet, right? If you think about Gaia, if you think about the biosphere, we are consuming up stuff fast and unrenewably and turning it into trash. We need to move all the humans from the liability side to the asset side of Gaia's balance sheet to continue. So what we just specified, the increasing sovereignty of humanity, we would say is actually a necessary criteria of humanity continuing to exist. And what do you see as the biggest rate limiting factor in that transition from the liability side to the asset side? Is it nutrition? Is it our environment? I, I think what you guys are doing is exciting for the reason that Many people are very resistant to nutritional changes and lifestyle changes. But if you tell them that they can take a nutritional supplement that will start giving them additional motivation and intellectual capacity, that may be the impetus that leads to other changes. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on what's limiting most people. 
what is limiting most individuals from increasing their sovereignty or what is the most great limiting for humanity crossing the transition from the phase it's been in to, the, to a new viable phase are different questions. They're related, but they're not exactly the same question. And I would say that just like what is our favorite ingredient, which is a reductionist, how do you take a whole systems issue and make it about one thing? It's the same kind of thing. Here is if somebody takes nootropics and they are still sleeping poorly and they are still eating poorly and they're still in shitty relationships and they are allocating negative meaning to lots of things, this is just fundamentally not going to work. We believe that the nootropic has the ability to be a relatively, and specifically the way we develop this formula and the formulas that will follow, a relatively easy thing to do that can increase people's capacity and predisposition to do more things. Right? That's why it's interesting for us, is everyone knows that there are a lot of things that if they did would be good for them and would increase their capacity to do more things, but that doesn't mean it's easy for them to do those things. So our question was, can we increase people's capacity and their predisposition to do more of the things that will continue to lead them in a virtuous cycle? And how do you use Qualia personally? I've been using this for as long as this product has existed in the earlier iterations as we were developing them. So over five years now, it's designed to be cycled. Part of not creating down regulation and dependence is different molecules can be taken you know, different amounts before the body starts to desensitize or downregulate to them. Some things really should only be taken once a month or less, right? Like where you, they can start to create system imbalance. Caffeine, for instance, we advise that people who use coffee or mate or any kind of methyl xanthine caffeine-like source get off of all caffeine sources completely for about one week every three months. And based on people's different xanthine sensitivity, that amount might go up or down. Some people shouldn't use it at all. But in general, it's a molecule that people can use pretty often without needing to cycle, but they actually still do need to cycle, even if it's only, say, four times a year, to re-regulate their, specifically here, their, their adenosine inhibition. Um, so for qualia, it's something that is intended to be used five days on, two days off. You have to cycle two days off. And that doesn't mean that people couldn't use it less, right? Only use it when they want its effect, its acute effect now and again. But since we did design it where it's affecting things like neurogenesis and synaptogenesis and inflammation and, and phospholipid integrity, designed to be more beneficial with more regular use rather than just immediate effects. So it was intended for five days on, two days off. That is how I personally use it. Yeah, I've been a big fan of what you guys are doing, and I got turned on to it from Andrew, who we both know. I'd been weary of nootropics after multiple failed attempts. I used I used the racetams, paracetam, and aniracetam for a long time, and the pattern that kept repeating itself was it seemed like I wasn't able to sync up the amount of additional choline that I needed to take in in order to make that a viable long-term solution. So I finally just, after multiple crashes where I'd feel like a genius and then I'd feel like I couldn't get anything done. I swore off nootropics and I've been using qualia. And when we were out in Finland, Ben was uh, telling me how he was, he was using a special formulation before he got on stage. And then I, I spoke with some of you guys about that. And so you guys are doing a lot of fantastic work and I'm, I'm really excited about it. We're going to be adding it to the biohacker store and it's going to be the only 
the only no tropic that we have on there. So I think that about choline, your experience with it. Yeah. Choline, you, you can get different sources of choline donors, which then the body uses to make acetylcholine. It'll do other stuff with it, right? It can make phosphatidylcholine. It can use choline in the liver as a part of processing fat. So choline will do a bunch of things, but specifically as a nootropic stacked with racetams, the primary goal is for making sure there's enough base ingredient to make acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that's involved in the speed of synaptic communication and sensory processes, motor processes, memory consolidation, lots of really important you need choline to get where it needs to get, break down, et cetera, to where your body can then actually acetylate it, which means you also need enough acetyl donor. You need the right coenzymes involved for making them come together. And then whether it's acting on the peripheral nervous system or the central nervous system are different. And then the acetylcholine getting across the synapse, right, and then getting into the postsynaptic receptor, there's a lot of things involved in the acetylcholine pathway. So you've got you know, do you use CDP choline or do you use alpha GPC? Alpha GPC is downstream of phosphatidylcholine. CDP choline is upstream from phosphatidylcholine. Uridine monophosphate is upstream from CDP choline. There's a set of transforms. When you think about that deeply and you model it, you can start to look at which things are going to turn to acetylcholine in which time period, which ones are going to robust other parts of the support process, how much in general, this is going to be genomically different and chemically different for people based on their diet. How much acetyl donor from acetylcarnitine or acetyltyrosine or something like that is necessary to make sure that the acetyl group isn't rate limiting to go with the choline? How much B5 is necessary for you know, binding the process? And then getting that acetylcholine from the presynaptic neuron across the synapse is where acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, right, which are limiting the process of breaking down acetylcholine and the synapse get very useful. This is Huberzine A or galantamine or various things like that. And then once it's across the synapse, is it getting taken up in the postsynaptic neuron? And you have different receptors that can pull up acetylcholine and they have different effects. So generally this is where the racetams come in and they are primarily upregulating the uptake of acetylcholine in the NMDA complex, but then each different racetam does additional other stuff, right? They also affect the dopamine receptors or the GABA receptors or something else, which is why aniracetam and phenylpracetam have such different effects, even though they're both having this NMDA effect. So rather than just be like, all right, mix some choline donors with some racetams, like that's a fine starting place, but you get the effect you got, which is like, it's really on then it's really off. How can we make sure that we have pretty consistent levels of acetylcholine and that they are moving across the synapse and the postsynaptic neuron and enough cell energy to process that and the other neurotransmitters, the catecholamines, glutamate, et cetera, that have to be balanced with that are also being supported. That's why I said it's not so much about which ingredients, it's about whole system process that ends up being fundamentally more than some of its parts separately. Uh, it, makes, it makes complete sense. Do you see any future where racetams are able to be marketed as a nutritional supplement in the U.S.? This is why Ben was sharing with you that he was uh, using something that's part of our R&D lab, but is not available for sale yet, is there are a number of chemicals that are really interesting chemicals that have good evidence of effectiveness and safety that are over-the-counter or even prescription drugs in other countries, but they happen to live in a regulatory bardo here where they are not prescription and they are not over-the-counter and they're not supplements, they're research chemicals. And so you can go to Serotropic or Powder City or you know different places and buy research chemicals, but uh, 
it's a regulatorily difficult space, especially because they're, you know, to be sold not for human consumption. We are working with many other groups to see about evolving regulation here. We're also working with other countries that already have different regulation. And we're also working to find similar effects from things that are in regulatory, uh, you know, that are, that are regulatorily okay. So the question of will we be able to get more pharmacologically meaningful things available to people. We're actively working on it. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, I love what you guys are doing. I'm blown away by your level of knowledge. Is, is most of what you learned, are you autodidact? Was it because of what you had to go through with your own health? Or is, is it a combination of learning by necessity and then what you've been doing with Qualia? I would say the origin of it was I was really fortunate to have parents that homeschooled me, home educated me as a kid, and that had this philosophy a little bit like unschooling, but uh, had some nuances that unschooling didn't have before unschooling existed, which is they didn't give me any curriculum at all. They didn't say, now you do social studies, now you do math, now you do spelling. As a result, I still can't spell. My handwriting is illegible. But I did get to dive very deeply into the sciences because when, when little kids ask, why is fire hot? It's, it is a difficult, profound science question that requires describing how nerves work and how brain processing works and the subjective interface between feeling hotness and, and what's happening to a nerve and, and how photons are interacting and ionizing radiation. Mean, there's like a lot that's involved. We don't know the answers. We're like, I don't know. We'll give them some bullshit answer. Don't touch the fire. And then like spell this thing based on some language that it actually doesn't even have an orderly ontology. So we don't facilitate their interests. And then we try and force them to focus on uninteresting shit. And in doing so, we break their interests in life and then they just want to watch TV. And, but if we facilitate kids' interests well, I believe they all become polymath geniuses. And so I was very fortunate to get to start studying things I was interested in early on and have just got to continue them. The last question, I feel like I could have a converse for hours because it's very interesting. You're, I mean, you're a great guy. What do you think is the future of education in America? Take the last part of that off. Because in America versus anywhere on this little spaceship Earth is uh, the same answer. What is the future of supporting the unique genius of every human child developing fully towards the realization of their full potential for themselves and their role to play in universe? The first thing is we have to frame it up that way. The goal is not to develop them to be a good cog in the wheel of a system that shouldn't even exist, right? The goal is not that they get good grades. The goal is that the unique disposition that they have that has something non-fungible, right? Something non-interchangeable to offer to universe. It's like if, he, if Salvador Dali hadn't done Dali, if he'd been too insecure and just decided not to paint because his shit was weird, somebody else wouldn't have done Dali. Escher didn't do Dali, right? Like Escher did Escher. Michelangelo did Michelangelo. If Dolly hadn't done Dolly, the world would just be less. And so it's important to get that it's not like we're all just fungible, we're interchangeable. If we don't do it, somebody else will do it. That's only if we're already broken and have disconnected from who we uniquely are. But we have unique perspective, unique experience, something to offer to reality that is just a given, right? And so facilitating humans from the time they start here to identify what that is and develop their capacities in service of, of that and in service to the whole should be the MO of education. And then how that is done is exposing them 
to all kinds of things to see what they're really innately fascinated by and then facilitating with all of the resources capable their development in the areas of fascination. Wow. Daniel, thank you so much. Where can people follow more of what you're up to? Where can they learn more about Qualia and your flagship product? And Yeah, awesome. So website is neurohacker.com. Right now it is largely focused on Qualia since that's the, the commercial offering we have, but there's some information about what Neurohacker Collective is about and its future aims. So you can go there, find out about it as new information comes about, it'll be posted there. We're also on Facebook. We're on some other social media sites as well, I believe, but Facebook is a good place where things are updated. And if people have some unique, non-fungible brilliance, genius to add to the space of bio-neuropsycho-optimization and they want to come participate with us, contact us. Amazing. Well, I can tell you going into this interview, I've I'd been on the phone a lot of the day. I feel now more charged up than I did before we even started. So it's been a blast talking with you. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate your time, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks, my friend. This episode is brought to you by adrenalquiz.com. If you're concerned about your stress levels and how they might be affecting your health, I highly suggest you head over to adrenalquiz.com. Adrenalquiz.com is an easy-to-use tool for calculating and evaluating different stress-related systems and the effect they have on your body. It's also the first step in understanding how to reset your adrenals to lose weight, maximize your performance, and increase energy. I was absolutely floored when I took the quiz and realized how stressed my body actually was. And since following the program, I've noticed great improvements in my energy, my focus, and just feel like I've experienced an overall physical and psychological reset. So if you're ready to let go of stress and reset your body, I encourage you to check out adrenalquiz.com. That's A-D-R-E-N-A-L quiz.com. This episode is brought to you by the Earth Pulse PEMF Sleep on Command device. If you're looking for better sleep, enhanced mitochondrial function, improved performance, and accelerated recovery, I highly recommend you check out the Earth Pulse. Within the first week of sleeping on my Earth Pulse, I was seeing improved exercise performance, delayed onset of fatigue, I noticed more energy during my workouts, and I was able to break the three-minute mark on a static breath hold. I now sleep on my Earth Pulse PEMF, which stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field device every single night. I have the one that has two coils. One goes under your pillow, one goes under your mattress, and I take it with me when I travel. I don't leave home without it. Every time I use my Earth Pulse, I wake up feeling clearer, calmer, and more energized. And I can tell the difference if I skip using it for a few nights. What's even cooler is it's incredibly easy to use. I just put it in manual mode, set it to 9.6 hertz, and about 15 minutes before my alarm is going to go off, and that's it. It's very easy, just a couple buttons, and the performance-enhancing benefits are profound. To learn more about the Earth Pulse and check out some of the scientific literature, you can go to biohackingsecrets.com forward slash Earth Pulse. That's biohackingsecrets.com forward slash E-A-R-T-H-P-U-L-S-E.